Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. After birth, the child is, uh, experiences the world and, uh, well, experiences everything in a state of what's called jointedness, a symbiotic state where the child can't understand that there's actually any separate beings or anything separate from itself. It literally uh, experiences the world as a continuum actually interconnected there's nothing outside of itself. It literally experiences um, the mother as part of a continuum. The infant doesn't even have a sense of exteriority or self-other. It's almost impossible for us to grasp. It's so foreign uh, from our adult perspective. In this grandiose state, the child's very needs are anticipated by the caregiver. So if the child is cold, even before it realizes that it's cold, the mother might uh, put a blanket over it or might, the breast might be presented even before the infant becomes aware that it's hungry or the infant might be have its um, clothing changed before it realizes it soiled itself. So the infant is in this state of uh, where every need is almost to a degree anticipated. And uh, obviously that's a remarkable perspective to begin our lives from. Eventually, all mothers and, and caregivers have to eventually reclaim their lives and not become so uh, dedicated uh, to the point that it actually... Um, hinders their own ability to pursue a meaningful, purposeful existence outside of caregiving. So the mother, uh, who's the good enough mother, good enough father, what they do is they insert increasing, very gradual, incremental delays between when the infant cries and when they respond to those cries. It's called um, optimal frustration. And that's a term by a great American psychologist, uh, Heinz Coat. And optimal frustration means that eventually we have to be transitioned from this first jointed symbiotic, I'm connected with everything, every need I have will be met, there's nobody outside of me, there's no self-other, I am at the absolute center of the universe, to the perspective of the adult, which is pretty much the fucking opposite, right? I'm not the center of the universe. Not every need I have will be anticipated. I'm not connected with everyone. In fact, other people out there don't have my well-being always top of mind. In fact, some of them will be uh, completely indifferent to my well-being. So that transition has to be done very, very gradually because it's a huge shock especially for a being so small and and vulnerable at the age of 
one or two for an infant to suddenly to to be introduced to this sense that it is separate from the people around it that its needs may or may not be granted or addressed with any rapidity that some needs will go entirely unmet and that the child will eventually have to uh, find ways, most importantly, to regulate its own emotions rather than depending upon the caregiver to be there and immediately regulate its emotions through touch and through warmth and through eye contact. An infant doesn't always get that, right? An infant very often, after a while, wants to be seen, wants to be taken, to be noticed, but sometimes the parents, understandably, have got a lot going on. And eventually, that's a necessity that a child be able to manage that transition. And it's jarring. And if it's done too quickly, the child will develop all these, what Winnicott called, false self strategies to constantly reclaim attention and caregiving because the, the transition from uh, connectedness and grandiosity to the separate, isolated, unique uh, individual uh, has been done too quickly. So to, to help with this transition, the, the attuned mother and caregivers prov uh, help provide the child with two qualities that are essential. One is called a transitional object. And that is essentially a security blanket or a toy, something that the child touches and claims and carries around with it. And the security blanket is a representation, essentially, of the mother or father. It's a representation of the caregiver. Uh, it's literally something that the child will carry around. And interestingly enough, in Harlow's famous studies with... Uh, uh, rhesus monkeys, he found that rhesus, baby rhesus monkeys prefer to connect with a, uh, uh, an object that's covered with fur and cloth rather than go to an object that could provide it with milk. Literally, given the choice, we will choose something that reminds us of caregiving over literally sustenance and nurture and uh, food. Um, this object that the child latches onto and carries around with it um, is the earliest uh, way that the child understands what's called not me. Not me is essentially I have a self, but there are beings separate from me that are in essence not me, <laughs> that are outside and so in and very often the child will do different things to this transitional object it will sometimes attack it and literally discharge its aggression on it and all of this is necessary for the child to be able to work through the fact that sometimes a caregiver will not be available so it needs this imaginary figure to help give it confidence and that imaginary figure allows it to have a sense of mastery 
over the mother or the father even when they're not there. The child feels more confident, stronger, more capable, more secure when it has its transitional object. Now, in addition to the transitional object, we also have the transitional space. The transitional space is if you've ever watched, a, you know, one or two-year-old, there's an area where the child plays and where it, it will very often keep all of its toys and while the toys will be strewn about, there's this one core area where the child gravitates to to literally play with toys and in that space the child creates narratives where it retells the events of its life. Very often in child therapy, the therapist will have a bunch of toys and the child will literally reenact the family drama using blocks and toys and little cars and stuff like that. And it'll have one car that represents daddy and mommy. And if there's, if they've been, there's been tension, he'll have the, the toys knock against each other. And if they've been happy, he'll create a drama that represents that. So the child is literally learning to, um, integrate its feelings about its family and its relationships and all of the sensations externally and turn it into a narrative. And that's vital for us to have a sense of mastery over our lives, a sense of agency. The capability of turning our experience into a story is deeply embedded with emotion regulation. Until we turn a traumatic or wounding or disappointing event into a story, we literally cannot have any sense of, we feel overwhelmed. We don't understand why it happened. We don't understand if it could happen again. In fact, before we turn events into stories, the right hemisphere uh, very often is a timeless zone that essentially will keep us anxious or frightened or depressed until we can turn our life events into a narrative. And in, in so doing, when you create a narrative or a story of the things that happen, it gives you a sense of control. Because if you can turn life into a story, in that story you're explaining why things happened. And in so doing, when you tell a story of why these things happened to me, why did this person no longer become available? Why did this person go away? Why is this person now in my life? To have a story gives you a sense of power. It gives you a se it reduces vulnerability. So the transitional space and the transitional object help us integrate our emotions, which are largely embodied and right hemispheric and use certain regions of the brain that are completely inaccessible to conscious control. And they integrate it into the areas of the brain that are under our conscious control, our cognition, our storytelling, our ideas, our plans, our intentions, our goals. And all of this is creates a sense of confidence for the child because without a transitional object, and most importantly, that transitional space where the child can literally enact its emotions, its fear, its sadness, its joy, its excitement, and also replay the sort of dominant events that are going on between it and the parents. Without that, 
the child has no ability to grasp and to turn its experience into anything coherent. And it feels a lack of confidence because it doesn't know why uh, things have happened and it doesn't have any sense of being able to integrate its emotional life into the event. So that play that children do is so fucking vital to their, it's a developmental marker that allows them to achieve a degree of mastery over the world. It's not an escape. When children fantasize and play, it's anything but an escape. It's actually a way the child can uh, discharge tension as well. And this in-between world, as I call it, it's in between because it's not fully internal because it's out there. The child is playing with toys and literally engaging with the mother or father who's with the child and sometimes playing with the child. So it's not internal, but it's not entirely external either because the child can make the toys do crazy things. Suddenly cars can fly and, you know, a little frog doll can like, you know, start bashing a, you know, a, what do they call it? transformer toy, you know. So it's neither internal nor external. It's an in-between world where emotions and fantasies can interact with real objects. And that's vital for our development. And here's the thing, uh, great psychologists such as Winnicott uh, ha, you know, noted that that need for a transitional space or a realm where we can, through imagination, work through our disappointments and our deficits and our frustrations and our fears is uh, never abated. We need it for our entire lives. This is why we gravitate towards the arts. and We love to go to uh, look at uh, art because there's an interplay of the imaginary and form. When we look at a great painting or we, um, we watch a Marvel TV show or whatever, we're literally reenacting this need for there to be a realm that doesn't have that foreign, uncontrollable, vulnerable world of other people who don't necessarily care about me and are living their own lives where my needs might not be met. And this entirely internal realm of emotions that are this roiling sea of feelings that are very often difficult to bear. So that in-between world of, you know, of play and creativity bridges that. Another place where we get this besides watching, you know, prefabricated, uh, fantasy shows and the arts is we get it from therapy and the therapeutic environment is essentially a, what Winnicott called a, um, holding space. It recreates that time where the mother uh, is with the child and lets the child be authentically whatever it wants to be and play. And in therapy, the ideal therapist does the same. That's part of the job in counseling we do is that we create a safe environment where people can talk and be and, and there where we're literally indulging 
purposefully in a healthy way an individual to to uh, speak of all of its sadness and needs and dreams and nothing is rejected nothing is dismissed nothing is shamed and the in so doing uh, somebody that I that we work with hopefully begins to have a environment where they can get confidence once again to go out and uh, pursue their needs and of course the realm I'm talking about in tonight's talk is uh, the spiritual practice realm. In our meditation is an ideal time to employ our imagination and not to actually use it simply as a way to simply slavishly sit with the breath and count your breaths. That's never what the Buddha intended. In fact, uh, there's so many suttas in the canon which talk about the use of creative visualizations and play in meditation. And it never really was uh, questioned that uh, throughout one's practice one would have the use of these tools to address deficits or fears or anxieties in our life. Certainly this realm of play and freedom and uh, compensation is where we're most authentic because in the world where we don't know if people will like us, where we don't know if people will pay attention, where we don't know if somebody cares about us, that's a realm where we're most likely to, to present a false self to try to be people-pleasing, to try to be interesting, to try to be funny, to try to be smart, to try to be something. But if we have a realm where we can be imaginative and play and creative, then we do not have to erect this social performative self to get love. And of course... <clears throat> If we try to do this when we're in our teens or young adult life, very often we can be shamed and dismissed. People can be accused of being regressive, but actually that's far from the case. Um, in contemporary therapeutic modalities, not only is art therapy, music therapy, creative play therapies, much in the ascendancy, but now pretty much they are part and parcel of pretty much any core healing regime. Now in the Buddhist canon, the it, what's mentioned from the very earliest suttas is something called the nimitta, which is an image conjured up in the mind's eye. But it goes beyond that. In some of the most important suttas, not only the lion's roar, which is one of the most foundational suttas, in the canon, but the Kavata, the Sangharava. And so Buddha says, in practice, you can develop all kinds of supernormal powers. You could become many beings and then become one being again. You, and that means you could just split yourself into different characters and play out different parts of yourself. You can move un, in, unhindered through walls, enclosures, mountains, and space. 
You could dive in and out of the earth as if it were water, and you could sit cross-legged and travel through space like a bird. That's pretty cool. You could, with one hand, touch and stroke the moon and the sun, and you could become a master over the entire universe. In the Vasudhi Maga, which is one of the earliest commentaries, it says that in many practitioners, they start by seeing stars or clusters of gems or pearls or flowers or lotus, lotuses or chariot wheels, moons and suns and palaces and so forth. So clearly, there's this very obvious call for using imagination in our practice. Today, um, in the work of uh, many attachment therapists and uh, other therapists are now employing visualization meditations to help address deficits in clients. And I've introduced one of those practices, uh, the ideal parent, uh, and also uh, actually another too. There's the um, there's this, the esteem building protocol and the ideal parent protocol. In the ideal parent protocol, we go back in time and visualize a time when we most needed to have love and support from a caregiver, but it wasn't available. And you literally create from imagination who would have been a perfect parent for you when you didn't have one. And that actually, the, the goal of that is to create or to heal our broken internal working models based on the actual deficits of um, when we had caregivers who didn't make us feel secure. So if you grew up with a father or mother who was not emotionally available or who was shaming or who was neglecting, then what you could do is create an internal, uh, create an image of an ideal father or mother who would be available, attentive, caring. And in so doing, you're actually creating the internal experience of what it's like to be cared about and loved and important to someone. And when you have that feeling in your body, then when you meet people on a date, you can actually, instead of trying to figure out, well, how the fuck am I supposed to know if this is somebody I should continue seeing or not? Should I just go with the person who seems the most interesting? No. Should I go with the person who's the most exciting? No. Should I go with the person who's the most successful? No. Well, how do we choose? We actually choose by who is the individual that creates in us that feeling of being cared about, of being loved. And if you didn't get it in childhood, your only way of getting that is in practice. To visualize it, to, I mean, you could also get it in therapy and with close friends and 12-step support groups, but you can also create it in your imagination, and it works. There's clinical studies that have followed the ideal parent protocol, and they show that there's a significant abatement in pathology and symptomology of complex PTSD. Another approach is in uh, for people who have real lack of self-esteem and confidence, they visualize themselves in interactions with other people where they are being really effective and where they're really 
engaging with other people in a really um, useful, impactful way where they are bettering the lives of other people. And in, when they do that, in their imagination, they create the felt, embodied, somatic sense of what it is like to be in a world with other people in a beneficial, confident way. And if you have that feeling, and you know what that feeling is like, then when you're in a social setting or in a setting in a hierarchical experience where you normally shut down, if you can recreate that body state, guess what? Your behaviors will follow. That's one of the core insights of bottom-up therapies, which is that people don't act in the way they think or want to act so much as they act in the way their bodies set them up for. So if the body is set up in this tight, little, frightened, constrained, vulnerable way, there's no way we'll ever go into an interpersonal interaction with confidence if we have our heads down. But if in a meditation you can visualize yourself interacting with others purposefully, confidently, uh, and getting your needs met, then you feel what that body is like. And then when you go into a charged, triggering interpersonal interaction, go into that body that you already have created. And guess what? There's actual studies that show that people's behaviors change when they change the physiological state that they're in. So that's my hard sell for uh, what we are going to do is actually in our practice tonight, we're going to use imagination and creativity to address some felt deficit in our life or something that we'd like to uh, embolden ourselves with so that we can actually uh, hopefully uh, turn this practice into something that is immediately useful in our life. So, find a really comfortable seated position. If you can, if it feels right, close your eyes. If you don't like to close your eyes, no worries. Just look at the ground in front of you. But um, take a moment and just very gently wobble a bit like a top from side to side, from the back, and without any cognition or thought, just allow your body to come to a complete state of stillness and whatever state you wind up in is generally what will be more balanced than if you try to instill balance conceptually. So we'll take a few breaths just to uh, both
integrates a uh, more relaxed quality of being. So take a nice, complete, full in-breath through your nose. And while you do that, pretend that you're lifting up two really heavy uh, suitcases and each hand and your shoulders are lifting up by your ears and you're like you're carrying these two 75 pound suitcases and then as you breathe out drop your shoulders yeah and then gently reposition your shoulders a bit back like lift them up and circle them back so you open up your chest but not in a way that feels in any way uncomfortable So your shoulders are relaxed, but they're also behind the chest. The chest is open and expansive. And then let's take a second full in-breath, and you can either push out the belly or tighten the belly, whatever feels appropriate. Some people like to pull it in. Some people like to push it out. Whatever works, and just hold it. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, just relax and soften the belly. And for our third in-breath, bring your awareness to the face and lock the jaw and squinch the nose and the forehead and tighten the micro muscles around the eyes so we get a pinched ugly little face and then as you breathe out just release all of that tension And really focus on softening the muscles around the eyes. When we're thinking or lost in thought, there's this tension, this tendency, excuse me, for there be a sort of contraction or in those micro muscles. And also see if you can encourage the eyes themselves to settle so that they're not bouncing about behind your eyelids. Just encourage them to take a little relaxing period where they just settle down. If the eyes are settled, then very often the cognitive processes that generate inner chatter tend to quiet as well. And trying to keep your out-breath as long and relaxed as possible. The more your out-breath, the exhalation is smoother and far longer than the in-breath, it actually tones the vagal vagus nerve and actually informs your midbrain that you're 
safe. The amygdala, the brain's alarm system, is very attuned to how the body is breathing out. It's a little bit like the canary in the mind shaft. So if you keep that really long, smooth out-breath, you'll find that you will relax over time. It takes a little while to reduce the synaptic presence of cortisol, but you will relax. Long out-breaths. And if there's any area of your body that's tense or tight, breathe into that area. So if you feel like the muscles in the back of your neck are tight, just breathe into them. And as you breathe out slowly, imagine that somehow the out-breath is carrying with it any stress in those muscles in the back of the neck. See if you can open up now to the sensations that are constituent of the present moment. So, the sounds around you, you can move throughout this universe of sounds 
from the most distant sound to the distant sound, for example, the sounds from the street below, the sound of voices on the street, uh, Bowery, to the nearest sound of people breathing, sounds of the room. Your mind can travel between these sounds and just survey the ongoing auditory experience. Try to get as close as you can to sound without adding any overlay of thought, any And you can as well travel the entire universe of body sensations that are going on internally.
whenever you notice you've been pulled away from these universes of sound and body sensations and contact with the rest of the continuum of felt sensations of the ground. Whenever you get pulled into a thought that adds a virtual reality, just relax and return to the present sensations. We're actually going to have an opportunity to use imagination, but we're going to do it in a purposeful way. But let's first just establish a sense of ease and awareness. So using that long out-breath, getting as close as you can to the actual sensations, the constellation of feelings in the body, and the constellation of sounds in the landscape that surrounds us.
So at this point, I'd like you to allow the felt sensations of the body and the sounds surrounding us to begin to slightly recede from the foreground of awareness as if you were gently floating away from those twin universes. And I'd like you to now think of a interpersonal setting or situation where you feel at times you don't get your needs met by others. The situation where you feel either not heard or seen, not cared about, overlooked, any situation where you might feel infantilized or shamed, dismissed, any any setting that is a struggle and try to visualize what it's like to be with those people or that situation. See if you can visualize the setting, furniture, have a sense of what time of day it might be. And then I'd like you to, using your imagination, add a figure, what the Buddha called uh, Deva Nusati, visualizing a caring, supportive, kind, attentive individual with you in this setting. What would it feel like if you had an ideal buffer, someone who would stand up for you, who wouldn't let other people get away with dismissive or aggressive behavior? If you can't visualize such a person, just create that sense of being with someone who support you and see if you can while you hold this in mind, see if you can connect with how this might feel in your body. If you were with someone who really took care of you, where would you feel that support and kindness? For some of us, it might be a subtle ease in the chest or 
perhaps a reduction of any tension in the belly or the eyes might soften or a slight smile. The goal is to create a felt sense of what it's like to be cared about. This being, hopefully it's made up as much as possible from your imagination. Don't actually base it on someone. You can, if that feels easiest. But if you can, create just this sense of what the ideal companion, friend, partner would be like. Someone who would stand up for you. And how would that feel? If you can't visualize such a being, just say, I'm with someone who cares about me, who will protect, who's on my side, and see what the feelings behind those words evoke in your body. You just get to know what it's, what the feeling of being with someone who's secure is like. That feeling can guide you in your life. I'd like you to visualize yourself in the setting that's generally very overwhelming or difficult or trying. Now that you're with someone who cares about you and you have that added sense of support, visualize yourself speaking up, being effective, interacting with others in a really purposeful way that's both helpful and assertive. Just visualize your most, an image that represents your highest self. And again, see if you can connect with how that feels. For me, it's very often a a real sense of openness and flowing 
energy in the sternum. When you visualize yourself at your most confident and resilient, how does that feel? Really get to know that feeling so that you can recreate it in triggering unsafe situations in your life so you can move towards actualizing those goals. So, shortly I'm going to ring the bowl, and as always, I'd like to suggest that when you hear the sound, very slowly open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you and see before you look around the room, see if you can integrate the sensations associated with sight, colors, light forms with an awareness that maintains attention to your felt experience. Very often when we hear the sound of the bowl, if you just look around, then in that instant you're no longer aware of your internal experience. And to do that is to not only disconnect from all the wisdom of your right hemisphere, but it's also pretty much leading to a way of moving through the world entirely cognitively, which generally tends to lead to little growth, both emotionally and behaviorally.